Good morning. My name is Dale, and uh, typically on a Sunday morning, I am at our Broadway congregation, so it's nice to see you here today. And I'd like to talk a little bit about the story of Esther. But I would like to start with what I'm calling a once upon a time story. For the first 300 years of the church, things were difficult for followers of Jesus. There was widespread persecution and many were martyred. They died for their faith. But when the church, but the church grew in spite of these threats, I imagine that there would have been regular prayer for deliverance from persecution among those early believers. Little would they have known about the dramatic events to come early in the fourth century. The Roman emperor in the early 300s and fourth century was named Constantine the Great. As far as I know, this is an exact likeness of him. He came to power by birth, but it took some infighting before he really took over the empire. Through some strange events, Constantine converted to Christianity. In 313, he issued the Edict of Milan, making it legal to be a Christian for the first time in the ancient world. This was the dramatic end of persecution for early Christians. Later in the 4th century, another proclamation made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. This was the beginning of Christendom. My guess is that these were exciting times for the church. Prayers were answered. People were delivered. Followers of Jesus went from being persecuted to having privilege in a very short period of time. One scholar suggested that within weeks, buildings used to convict and sentence Christians became places of worship within weeks. I imagine that almost no one thought there could be any downside to this series of events. But Christendom came with good and bad. On the plus side for the early church, believers were free to worship for the first time without fear of persecution. Christians could preach the gospel and scripture with no fear. The church was able to influence society more openly, promoting justice, public morality, care for the poor and disenfranchised. But just as the church's impact on culture grew, so too did the culture's impact on the church. With their newfound privileged status, Christians began to shift their focus from service and sacrifice to politics and power. The affluent materialism of the Roman world started to seep into the church. The Christians became the dominant cultural group. The good and bad of Christendom has followed the church right up to the present time. In the Western world, the church has been dominant, the dominant cultural force for centuries. Christ followers were directly involved in the creation of hospitals, orphanages, and universities. Christians were instrumental in the development of modern science as well as the flourishing of the arts. The conviction that humanity was created in God's image led to social reforms, the abolition of slavery, modern democracies, and the recognition of human rights. However, cultural Christianity has always had one fatal downside. It produces cultural Christians. Whenever the church has been in a privileged position, it has produced people who align themselves with God simply by virtue of birth or heritage. In place of humility and union with Christ, 
Faith could be seen as merely a system of morals within acceptable social parameters. A church with political influence invariably attempts to enforce public morality and religious observance rather than fulfilling its mandate to change lives by the power of the gospel. Such efforts have never ended well, either for the church or for the culture. Examples of the bad are coercion, colonization, conformity, and even crusades. So, is Christendom over? I don't think quite yet, but the end is in sight. We Christians have lost some privilege in our society, but we still have a lot of privilege. For example, this building is has tax-free status. That's a privilege that we have because we're people of faith. Clergy have certain benefits that are a result of that. We can have private schools that are about faith, Christian schools. So those are examples where we still have some privilege in our society. But if we look at Europe, which is ahead of us in this, we can see that loss of privilege is growing. If we see the transition like this, maybe we would say Christendom, full-fledged Christendom, ended or started to end somewhere around the middle of the 20th century. Uh, I put a 2100 as a with a question mark, who knows when that transition will end. But after the transition, we could assume that the church would have no privilege, no status, possibly even persecuted. I think we're right about here. We're not completely out of Christendom, but we're definitely not into post-Christendom. I think it's important to say that the beginning of Christendom was a lot easier than the end of Christendom. Gaining privilege, gaining rights is much easier than losing them. We have a different set of challenges because we have had so much power and privilege for probably around 1,700 years. Okay, so what can Esther teach us about how to navigate this time of transition? I think Esther can help us. Some observations. So I'm going to focus on chapters 4 and 5, but here are a few things that we see that happen before Esther 4. First, there's this threat, and it's actually two different threats. The first one is these royal guards plot to murder the king. Um, and I kind of feel like, well, who cares? He's a pagan king. He's a bad guy. But apparently that's not true. Mordecai cares. And the second threat is the decree to kill all of the Jewish people. That's a threat. The opportunity also too. First, a Jewish man can save the king. Also interesting. Why? Uh, and second, a Jewish woman can save, win a beauty pageant and possibly save her people. There's a villain, Haman. He wants to kill all the Jews, especially Mordecai. I love it in the little video where the bad guys are always like this. <laughs> right? uh, Queen Vashti is like this too. That means bad, I, I guess, or they don't like stuff. Anyway, he's a villain. But here's something I find really interesting. There are three women in this story. Uh, some of them get lots of attention, but some don't. So the first one is Queen Vashti, again, a perfect likeness of her. Um, so she's the one who stood up for herself. She's the one who had dignity and morals. The king said, come show off your beauty to all my friends. And she said, no way. Again, like this. <laughs> right? And so he 
kicked her out of, the, out of the palace. He said, you can't be queen anymore. That was less than three years into his reign, so she didn't get a very long run. Then there's Esther, the new queen. Of course, we know all about her. She's a Jewish orphan girl raised by her cousin, beautiful enough to win a beauty pageant and become the king's new squishy. <laughs> That's what we call queens in my house, squishies. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Yeah, but he got rid of Vashti, got the new squishy Esther. Then there's this third woman who maybe we don't notice, but she's important. This is Zeresh. That's Haman's wife. So this is what it says in chapter 5. Then Haman's wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows. Now in the video, it's a pole, gruesome way to die. The guy gets impaled on a pole like a hot dog. That's really horrible. Uh, in the version that I am reading, it uses the word gallows, so I'm just going to, that's a little less gruesome, maybe, I don't know. But his wife, Zeresh, says to Haman, let a gallows be built 50 cubits high. Ooh, that's really high. Um, and in the morning, uh, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, and then go joyfully to the king's feast. This is the advice of the wife. It's kind of ironic that the advice of the wife completely backfired in that Haman ended up dying on that very thing that she suggested. That's ironic. The other thing that's ironic is at the end, Esther is given the estate of Haman. Now it says in the, in the video anyway that all of the sons of Haman were killed. We don't know what happened to this woman. Um, but somehow everything she has is given to Esther. So the circumstance of Esther is not the same as our situation, but maybe there are some similarities. Maybe there's something we can learn. The story of Esther is set in a time of greatly reduced privilege. The Jewish people really had no privilege. This was exile, taken away from home. As I suggested, we Christ followers still have a lot of privilege and will for some time, but we are also losing privilege. Maybe that's similar Esther. Uh, so here are some key things that I saw in the story. Maybe we can learn from that. The first is, is this idea of faith. Uh, God is present in exile. God is present far away from home. God's activity is to deliver the people of Israel and to protect them. He also is to judge those who are trying to destroy the people of Israel. Um, so, so this requires faith because it's actually a pretty long timeline. Uh, they've been there for many, many years, many decades. But even between when Esther becomes queen and when she does this thing that saves the people, it's about five years. Um, so to have enough faith to be able to wait, I think is an important thing in this story. Um, and then there's the hero. So it's, it's easy to think maybe Esther is the hero because the book is named after her after all. I don't think so. I think Mordecai is the hero. First of all, he's the one who took care of his cousin, raised her. Second, he's the one who noticed the problem and both saves the king, which at the end actually causes him to be able to be involved in saving the people. And then, of course, the beauty queen. Uh, God places people in positions of influence to be part of his work in accomplishing his will. Mordecai reminds Esther that her appointment as queen five years earlier might be for such a time as this, for the time of deliverance of her people. I think it's interesting that 
Esther accepted the customs of the place where she lived, entered a beauty pageant, married a Gentile, and a whole bunch of other things that would have been questionable for a Jewish person. I find that really interesting. Um, She's able to discern which things she should hang on to and which things she should let go. We'll come back to that. So, series of events. I think this is important because maybe it helps us know uh, some events or some a series of events that we could do. The first thing that happened was lament. Um, so before any action was taken, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. Gunny sack. Ashes on his head. Uh, it was fasting, weeping, lamenting by all the Jewish people. I think it's important that this is the first thing. The first thing is not action. The first thing is not to go and rant. It's actually to lament. Deep, deep sorrow. But after lament, we see action. Uh, What happened? Well, Mordecai informed Esther of this plot to kill the Jewish people, the decree, and asked her to go to the king to beg and beg his favor and plead with him. And we see this in chapter 4. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's the action. Then there's, I call it tact, where Esther initially, she just does all these things that we think, really, how does that work? So she conceals her identity. She doesn't let on that she's a Jewish person. And you think, well, is is that right? Shouldn't she lead with that? Say, here's who I am. Here's who I believe in. No, it doesn't do that. She conceals her Jewish identity for a greater purpose. Esther was very careful that she did not just throw her life away, even though she knew that that was on the line. She acknowledges, Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So she gets that she could die, but she's very tactful in how she does it. She doesn't just throw her life away. This is really in contrast to Vashti, who was ready to give it all up because she didn't feel like going and dancing for the king's friends. So then we see this appropriate boldness. Uh, Esther planned a banquet, but she had a lot of trickery. Did you notice that? She had lots of sneaky stuff she did. She didn't just go in an obvious way. She did it in an appropriate way. Eventually she uh, exposed Haman, but she did it in a shrewd way. She knew when it was appropriate to lay down her life and when to be sneaky. Eventually, she did take the big risk. Um, Another thing that we see here is what we've been calling embodied holiness. So you've heard this before. It comes from a book by Lee Beach, which is about the church in exile and post-Christendom. Lee Beach says, um, the particular exilic issue that Esther speaks to is that of living with limited power. Neither she nor Mordecai are people of influence, yet there is wisdom about how to live in exile. It includes knowing when to make a critical compromise for a greater purpose. I'm going to say that again. It includes knowing when to make a critical compromise for a greater purpose. Knowing what is worth dying for. Holiness is not taking a black and white stand, but in the words of Jesus, being as shrewd as a snake and as innocent as a dove. That was the example of Esther. Ultimately, we see that she is more loyal to her people even than to her own personal well-being, 
but she knows, quote, how to play by the rules in a hostile society. That's what Beach says. He says our definition of holiness needs to be increasingly marked by how we offer positive influence on our culture and as we engage it from the margins in exile. Esther's actions are not so the people of Israel can get back home to the good old days, but to thrive in Persia. So, a few concluding thoughts. How does this relate to the end of Christendom? First of all, post-Christendom is a kind of exile. Um, But exile isn't necessarily bad. In fact, the church has grown in profound ways when in loss of privilege. And even in persecution. It's not comfortable but maybe it's good. We need to know the difference between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of God, and the kingdom of God. This is confused in Christendom, where God and country are the same. Jesus was actually really clear about which kingdom mattered to him. Jesus received pressure all the time to institute a kind of Christendom for the Jewish people. This is where they were in power and had privilege. Jesus consistently refused. He resisted that pressure. Instead, he focused on the kingdom of God rather than even the best possible kingdom of earth. One time they asked Jesus if he should if they should pay taxes. And he said, give me some money. Let me see some money. And the money had a picture of Caesar on it. And Jesus said, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. I'm sure people were hoping that he would say, stop paying taxes. Let's over, overthrow those guys. But he didn't. The book of Esther helps us see that thriving in Persia, in exile, is more important than fighting to get out of exile. Thriving in exile is more important than fighting to get out of exile. So I think we need to learn to live uh, and to know how to live in a changing world where we and our way of faith may actually be losing influence. Or in other words, we need to learn to lose privilege. How to do that. Here's some things I think we should not do. Fight for privilege. Get hung up on the non-central issues or fight for Christendom. The example of Esther is actually to fit in. Choose the right actions that emphasize the most important. Privilege and power are not the most important. What should we do? Live lives that are pleasing to God. Be known as people who love, who love our fellow believers, love each other, but also people who love the world. In the book of John, we read, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So somehow, part of what we should do in post-Christendom, in exile, is love. Love each other. Love the world. To graciously accept decreased privilege, recognizing that privilege of Christendom came with abuses, and that we actually need to heal those abuses. It's important to know the difference between loss of privilege and persecution. They are not the same thing. So at the risk of being offensive, um, not being able to have Merry Christmas on a city bus is not persecution. 
Okay, maybe I'm pushing a little harder, but for us to lose tax-free status on this building is not persecution. It's actually loss of privilege. I think it's really important to know the difference. Lee Beach remind us that, reminds us that God engineers exile. God engineers it. It isn't random. It doesn't just happen. It's not just bad luck. It's actually for God's purposes. Exile is for his purposes. So um, at the time of Esther, what happened at the end of the story was the people of Israel, the Jewish people, actually got privilege. Because at the time of Esther, kingdoms of this earth were really important. But as we enter a time that is kind of like a time of exile, post-Christendom, I think we look to the words of Jesus. And Jesus consistently said, it's not about the kingdoms of this earth. So in that way, this is different than Esther. This is a different time. And instead, it's about the kingdom of God. So I believe one of our main tasks is to help future generations of the church thrive in exile. I'm going to say that again because I think it's really important. One of our main tasks is to help future generations of the church thrive in exile. Not uh, Longing for or even fighting the good, for the good old days will not help. So here's a, a really obvious one. But future generations, I hope, will not look back and say, yeah, back in the 2010s, they fought so they could keep tax-free status of the church. And they lost it anyway, but they fought for it. I mean, they were willing to sacrifice anything just to keep that. I hope that's not what future generations say. Rather, I hope future generations say, back in the 2010s, they taught us how to thrive when we lost privilege. How to be a thriving, vibrant, alive church that had powerful impact on society even when they lost privilege. I think that's the challenge for us. So, uh, we've read for such a time as this, I'm going to say for such a time of this as this, many of us are in places where we can be the kingdom of God present. We can bless people. We can love people like God does. One Anabaptist writer, and you might say, well, why do you say Anabaptist? That's our tradition. Our tradition comes out of Anabaptist roots. One Anabaptist writer says, we no longer live in Christendom. We cannot legislate Christian morality. We cannot compel Christian orthodoxy or observance. In post-Christendom, we are missionaries who are called to share the lot of the marginalized. My hope is also that we can be healed by learning from those who may persecute us and by repenting of our pride. I'm going to say that again. This is a quote from that same writer. My hope is also that we can be healed by learning from those who may persecute us and by repenting of our pride. By God's grace, we can have great missionary potency in the post-Christendom world that God loves so much. Another writer says this, We believe the church militant and triumphant bore little resemblance to the church God established throughout the life death, and resurrection of Jesus. There is an increasingly shared conviction that the kingdom of God we are called to is radically different from all versions of the kingdoms of this world. 
While the kingdoms of this world all manifest the character of Caesar as they seek to rule people and conquer enemies, the kingdom of God always manifests the character of Jesus, seeking to serve people, to love enemies, as it manifests the power of the cross. For such a time as this, many of us are in places where we can be the kingdom of God present. We can bless people. We can love people. So what? I think it's important to resist the temptation to fight for rights, fight for privilege. I know that seems counter counterintuitive, but I think it's really important as people of Jesus who are not of the kingdoms of this world. I think that's important. I also think it's really important to be shrewd. We learned this from Esther. Uh, what are those central things? What are the things worth dying for? Maybe we confuse sometimes the things that aren't worth dying for for the ones that are. And then this final thing that I just read, where it says that we will learn from those who may persecute us. Again, I believe that a huge part of the challenge for the church today is to help future generations learn to thrive in the exile of post-Christendom. This is not a scary time for the church. This is an incredibly powerful opportunity to be part of the kingdom of God in our world. Now, as we think about uh, this idea of passing on to future generations, I'm not just talking about people who are under 30 in the room. I think some of the key leaders in this room today are under 20, who will be the ones who will be on the front lines of learning how to thrive in a world where we Christians no longer have privilege. And what does that look like? I think it's okay. I think, it, I think God has got this one. And I think that the church can thrive, that people can be reached, that salvation can come even to our nation, even if we don't have privilege. Um, let's pray. Father, thanks for your great blessing in our lives. We don't want to downplay the blessings of how you delivered the church from persecution in the fourth century. But we also realize that we're entering a time where we will have to learn how to thrive without privilege. And I pray that you would give us grace to do that. Give us grace to learn from those who may persecute us. Give us wisdom and vision to be able to help future generations learn how to thrive in a world that is very different than the one we have lived in. We trust you with this, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.